Hallelujah. Gracious Heavenly Father, we take refuge in Your name this morning. Your name certainly is a strong tower. and The righteous can find safety and peace, consolation and victory in it. Your name is holy. It is set apart. There is no one else that can compare to You. Indeed, all are dependent on You. There is none who can share the glory of our God, who can compete with His will, who can show anything that the Lord has not first granted already, either by permission or by grace. There is no power or force in this universe, either for evil or for good, that will have the last words, save the name of our Lord, Save the, name, save the name of our God. Your name is holy. You are high and lifted up. And this earth is just your footstool. The train of your robe fills this temple. The heavens cannot contain the glory of the Lord, but just reflect a small part. And the stars, though innumerable by our count, are just a fraction of what your power is able to set into being. Lord, we rejoice in You and we declare that You are worthy of praise. And now as we explore the aspects of Your glory that have been revealed to us in Scripture, we pray that Your Holy Spirit would write them on the tables of our hearts and illuminate them to our mind. And I pray that You would find for Yourself new capacities within our soul to accommodate Your glory, for us to understand in deeper measure how You have made Yourself known how you can be glorified in us, and what good news is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. In your holy name we pray, Jesus. Amen. What a privilege to be gathered together to celebrate our Lord again today. I'll invite you to turn with me to Psalm 17. It's our Psalm a Month Sunday. The title of this morning's message is The Satisfaction War. The Satisfaction War. The title reflects a dichotomy, two sides aligned against one another that David has identified as his enemies and his position. But we can, by extension, see ourselves easily in this psalm. If you're a believer here today and love righteousness, you can see yourself aligned with David and you can see clearly the lines of distinction and demarcation between you and the enemy's camp, those aligned with wickedness, those who would seek satisfaction not in their portion in the next life, in eternal life, but those who would seek satisfaction by a portion that this life alone would afford them. Thus the title, The Satisfaction War. Before we read this psalm, these 15 verses, I want to draw a note of amazement from the context of this psalm once again. Consider our author, David, in his life with all of the adversity that attended his way, I often imagine, and we've said it several times already in this series, David probably wrote prayers like this and songs were sung like this during times when he was surrounded by real enemies, physical enemies, with real swords in their hand. Now, put yourself in David's shoes as a fugitive for hundreds of hours, you know, or hundreds of days at a time, you know, thousands of hours, years running from having no real place to call home, no place of security, no friends aside from the few that you've collected and the mighty men who are willing to join you, but no city, 
no house, no group of individuals where you can go and know that you're home. Not having home, the way we most tangibly think of our house, our home, our comfortable surroundings. A lot of us, we can travel for periods of time, maybe be away on business, even away for some time fighting in a foreign country, and we take consolation and refuge in the fact that I just got a letter from home. Or soon, Christmas is coming, and I can return to my loved ones and to my family. And just having that emotional point of reference and that consolation that you have a base sometimes can give you great endurance when you're traveling or away in business, even away at war or what have you, for long periods of time. But David, for many, many years, did not have home. Now, if I found myself in David's position, likely the kind of context that this psalm was written, just writing in the flesh, by the pressure of the circumstances that were weighing on me, the enemies around me, basically a felon with a bounty on my head, the whole nation turned against me in, in a lot of cases or willing to turn me in in order to get favor from Saul, who was the king of the day and had all the power. If I put myself in those shoes, if I were to go to the Lord in prayer, and, and I know I would, as a believer, but to think what kind of prayer you would offer under those conditions, probably it would more likely come out as a desperate cry for help and relief from your immediate circumstances. And here's the surprising element of David's prayers. While he does cry out for relief from his immediate circumstances, prayers like this one, songs like this one, are so rich in spiritual depth that it is abundantly clear that the Holy Spirit was using his circumstances, using his pen, using his voice, using his harp and his melodies, but he was using all those things to communicate something so far beyond David's conscious struggle, his immediate need. The Holy Spirit was using these circumstances to communicate deep truths. Truths that hit David's circumstances in his flesh and in his humanity, it would be difficult to see. If you have a lot of peace and time to ponder and sit and do your quiet time, you can come up with, much more easily, things of deep uh, consideration in the Word of God and aspects of God and His attributes to ponder at great length. But when you're under pressure, when one wrong turn, one poor decision would mean life itself, it's much harder to do anything except cry out for reprieve. Nevertheless, under these conditions, no doubt, Psalm 17 was written, and we find within its writings here such great depth and spiritual insight that I think it bears notice that this is the Word of God Himself through His servant David. Psalm 17, verse 1. The title of this psalm is a prayer of David, and it is a prayer. A prayer from the battlefield, through and through, from beginning to end, but a prayer much deeper, again, than circumstance. A prayer that speaks to higher truths. Let's explore these as we read. Verse 1. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer. From lips free of deceit. From your presence, let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me, and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the hand of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I call upon you. 
For you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love. O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Verse 8. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. From the violent who do me vi- from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. They close their hearts to pity. With their mouths they speak arrogantly. They have, stu- they have surrounded our steps and set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a lion, eager to tear, as a young lion lurking in ambush. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him, deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure, they are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Again, the last verse. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. The lines are clearly drawn in the satisfaction war. There are two parties here at odds. There are David's adversaries and those who can associate themselves, who can relate to and see themselves as David. David, one who God had called out and set apart for his will and purposes. And you and I, like David, are his chosen people if you confess Christ as your Savior and Lord. If you have the faith that David did, that the Messiah has come, David had faith that he would come, we can see ourselves on either side of these battle lines drawn on the side with David. David's adversaries were those who were seeking portion in this life. David was one who was seeking portion not in this life, but in the next. Beholding God's face in righteousness, satisfied in His likeness. It's interesting the aspects that David chose to highlight to describe the contrast and the difference between his enemies and those of himself. There weren't just those that wanted to kill him. They weren't just those who had politically aligned themselves with Saul's kingship and army. David saw this as a spiritual battle much deeper than a political one. The odds of of the day and the armies, they uh, no doubt had purposes and reasons for picking up arms in their own mind. But David, by the grace of God, saw through to the deeper issues at stake. And he saw that there are really two battle lines drawn among people at any given time. There are those who are seeking portion in this life, and there are those who are willing to forego their portion in this life so as not to damage or hinder or prevent their investment in the next. Those who are seeking their portion in this life, David, David's enemies, it seems clear in this war that the objective that they had in their mind determined the adversary and strategy of this war. That is to say, for the world, for those who would associate themselves or find themselves associated with David's enemies, if the objective of life, if life's goal is to have the ultimate peace and experience, happiness and security, blessings and riches, 
hope for tomorrow that's possible in this life, then that objective will determine their strategy in war. And they will negotiate things of eternity in order to maintain the tangible now. For David, it was exactly the opposite. He was, things of the tangible now were negotiable so that the things of eternal value would be secure. Those seeking portion in this life, whose objective had determined their adversary and their strategy, had set their face against God's anointed because what they wanted to maintain in their flesh was most important to them, actually set their face against God's will and plan because David was God's anointed king. So to set your face against God's will in order to maintain your own security and kingdom or even to not be persecuted by those whose forces that Saul's command who would not think of you very highly if you joined David's camp. Any of those reasons really separated the two positions in this war. This war for satisfaction, either satisfaction in this life or satisfaction in the next. There are names that David uses to describe his enemies. He uses violence or the violent, wicked, deadly enemies, lions, men of the world. For David, the violent, the wicked, deadly enemies, lions, like beasts of prey who would devour the weak and the vulnerable, men of the world, they were willing to negotiate the eternal renown, the city of God, the sacred relics of godliness, the plight of God's people and the reflection of His glory. All of those things were negotiable. They were the collateral damage they were willing to sustain for the sake of seeking and securing their portion in this life. Think about that for a moment. If this life is the ultimate end and our objective and what we pursue and how we order our affairs, the things that we will negotiate, the things that we will allow to be used as leverage to that end, the things we will trample on, the things that will be collateral damage in that war, will be the holy things of God. They will be His name, His fame, His renown, His glory. Let us be so careful so that none of our objectives in this life, war of life, would actually have as the consequence and the fallout and the human shield, if you will, that we would put out in between us and what we wanted to secure would be the name and the glory of God Himself. David was not willing to make that sacrifice, and hence many, many years were spent as a fugitive. Hence many years of suffering were endured. He, along with the saints of old, embraced the hardship of this time because he knew that the affliction of this present hour wasn't worthy to be compared to the glory that was prepared for those who who love God and are called according to His purposes. We see these principles worked out through Scripture But it's even more amazing when we see their testimony evidenced in the Old Testament. The New Testament and the work of the apostles, especially Paul, as he laid out in such systematic detail why life is worth sacrificing now and bearing a cross is worth the pain now with the joy that is set before us, like the joy that is set before Christ in full view. But in the Old Testament, just riding on faith, hints and glimpses into the future, pictures and ceremonial images that they had to go on. It's even more amazing to me that the testimony of the faithful like David were willing to put their life, their security, their hope, their riches, their fame on the line so as not to hamper their portion in the next. It's quite amazing to think of all of this in context. 
Now on the other side of the lines, David, for those seeking to be satisfied, beholding his face in righteousness and awakening to his likeness, our portion here, their portion here, such things such as riches, notoriety, security, comfort, and success, all of those are negotiable for the sake of eternal satisfaction. These are the two sides. For David, he was willing to lose his life that he might gain it, to put it in New Testament language. For those seeking to be satisfied, as he demonstrates so clearly in this last verse, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. All things that would stand in the way of that, he was willing to endure, or he was willing to sacrifice, and everything that he must embrace in order to be satisfied with God's likeness, he was willing to endure, even if it meant riches, notoriety, security, comfort, and success would be negotiable or would be threatened, all for the sake of the eternal satisfaction and knowing that there is no greater prize, no greater goal than beholding God's face in righteousness. All men, every last human being ever born since Adam will one day behold God's face. But for the arrogant and proud and all the swagger and braggadocio our rebellious sin nature affords us for the mere vapor and breath now, imagine the look on the faces as they stand beholding the unveiled face of the glory of God at the great and final white throne judgment of all eternity in that moment though all behold his face if you cannot behold his face in righteousness i can't imagine the shudders that would run up and down your spine the sheer agony of hell that would fill your soul already knowing the just end that you deserved and knowing this holy judge would never and could never sacrifice his name to grant you a favor, to sweep something under the rug. There is no rug in the celestial omniscience of a holy God to sweep anything under. There is only the blood of His Son that washes sin away entirely, or there is the hell of eternity that will justly dispense His wrath against all wickedness, all suppressed godliness, and all unrighteousness that man has entertained His whole life long since sin has tainted the human race. Since sin has spiritually killed the human race. David knew that the eternal stakes were so high that he was interpreting the terms of his own adversity in spiritual language that recognized there was far more than just getting through this day that was at stake. He needed to get through this day in a way that did not jeopardize his perspective that there is nothing worth maintaining if it distracts you, discourages you, dispirits you, or denies you or deceives you that there is a heaven to gain and no cost is worth trading for eternal satisfaction. There are three points of spiritual war strategy that David, I think, employs in the first half of this prayer. And there are ones that we could take away. When we ask ourselves the question, how to pray if we find ourselves feeling like life is a battle and maybe we're fighting a losing war, 
We're asking God to vanquish our enemies, to give us strength. What do we pray for? In what spirit do we pray? How do we align ourselves with the Lord's purposes? This Psalm 17 is an awesome example. There's three points of spiritual war strategy that David employs. I'm going to give you the first one. Number one, align yourself with the ultimate vindication of righteousness. Align yourself with the ultimate vindication of righteousness. In other words, for us, with the fullness of revelation in view, make sure that you are in Christ. Be diligent to consider the case for the, the state of your own soul. Be diligent to remember that it's only the blood of Christ that justifies. Because there will be an ultimate vindication of righteousness. That is, God's righteousness will be ultimately upheld. And everyone who tried to cheat, take an end run, a shortcut, or pull the wool over their eyes, the deceiving uh, wool over others, or God himself, will be proven to be exactly as he is when every veil is torn off and only the heart remains to be viewed by the omnipotence and omniscience of our holy God. Review with me in Psalm 17, 1. David says, Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. So David knew that if he was entertaining deception in his own heart, his prayers would go unheard. They would be futile. They would bounce off the doors of a brass heaven because they would be self-serving and would not be ones that would align themselves with God's righteousness. He says in verse 2, from your presence, let my vindication come. David knows that he will not be vindicated unless he has a, a, a plight, a prayer request that God could both prove himself holy and answer at the same time. Let your eyes behold the right. Number three, you have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me. You will find nothing I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, we'll pause there. The word, with regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. But more particularly, those first three verses, David is aligning himself with the ultimate vindication of righteousness. Both the enemies of David and David himself must submit to God's standards of righteousness. And I would propose to you that as David makes his case before the Lord, it's not so much that he's saying, I am a righteous man by my own efforts. He is saying in poetic language that I submit to your standards of righteousness. I know that this prayer cannot be heard without recognizing that you are totally sovereign that your all-seeing eye, your omniscience, reaches into the deepest recesses of my soul. And even in the night hour, as the remnants of the day's thinking are swirling less fettered in my mind over and over, you have permission to come and to test me. And the attitude here, I think, as David employs this poetic language, is the same language he's used or the same attitude he's used in other psalms. Search me and know me. And see if there be any wicked wicked way in me. And lead me in the ways everlasting. It's not as if David did not struggle with telling the truth. It's not as if David was a man of impeccable integrity at every test and trial. 
where he was never tempted or didn't succumb to the temptation to tell a lie. We think of several circumstances, I do, right offhand. Of course, with a horrible sin of Uriah's murder and the whole deceiving plan and scheme that David had engineered so he could both indulge adultery and justify himself to his armies and those around by secretly wishing this man dead, putting him in the front, and so on, and even lying to Uriah when he had him over to eat and and said this and that to him, and all in a deceitful scheme to kill the man, to take his wife, to hide his sin, and so on. There was times in David's life where he no doubt was taking refuge in a place he'd rather not be, and he might have told a lie or two, you know, the Lord knows, to get out of it and to try to make life easier for him. And in the end, he was shown his sin by the Lord and confessed and repented. What this psalm tells us is that when the Lord is in the foremost in the mind of the believer, he submits himself and his heart along with his situation for vindication. In other words, David is telling the Lord, you have permission to search me, and I pray that you would, as you search me, vanquish my enemies who do not care about integrity, do not confess their sin, do not stand for truth, and instead go on to brag as if they are God themselves and as if their word is the final authority, and so on. When we align our prayers for God's ultimate vindication, or according to God's ultimate vindication of His righteousness, how will that shape what we say? Well, for one thing, we won't go to the Lord assuming that the grounds we stand on, without even considering what they ought to be, are sound. All of us imagine a God in our head, but it is so important to hold the imagination of the God in our mind accountable to who He is in Scripture. There are many people who are perfectly fine with an idea or a concept of God in our culture today. He's my best friend and my buddy and always always there for me. He's like the, the smiling uncle that laughs at my foolishness or whatever. People in their mind cling on to figments in their imagination of what God is to them. And then they'll proceed to pray along those lines. And it is a faulty concept many times in their head that organizes their prayer and influences what they say in the position that they hold. If we were to follow David's example in Psalm 17, we will submit the concept of God that we have in our mind, the one that makes us comfortable, to the standards in Scripture and see that God is indeed holy and He is just and He will vindicate His own and His beloved. But remember, David was praying with the confidence of one who is anointed king of Israel. With what confidence do we pray, believers? We must go to prayer with the confidence that we, with the sign and seal of the Holy Spirit upon us, giving us the assurance of salvation, have been anointed, as it were, in the blood of Christ. And when we pray on those grounds, we are asking God to vindicate His glory in defending us because we have aligned ourselves with His righteousness. We don't pray as if we've earned something. We pray as the anointed ones whom God has called out by His own hand, and it would please His glory to rescue us. Because in so doing, He would rescue His name. And He would have, for a few more years, we hope at least, a testimony of righteousness flowing forth by the story of our redemption, even in answer to that prayer that we would give 
that would say, it's not because of the righteousness intrinsic to me, but that which I receive by the anointing of God himself, that he has vindicated and answered my prayer. And so align yourself with his righteousness or your prayers will go unhindered. For David, prayer was a serious task. It wasn't a psychological crutch to deal with circumstances. It wasn't just a venting session with a, you know, some kind of a celestial uh, shrink. David went to the throne room of God fully knowing that it was a sober task to place yourself before the all-seeing eyes of an omniscient God. And he did so only confidently knowing that he himself was called out and set apart for God's will and purposes, not on his own merits, but by God's ultimate and sovereign will and choosing. Point number two, points of spiritual war strategy. Number two, when we go to prayer under conditions similar to this, align ourselves, we should align ourselves with the effectual, immutable word of God. David did this in verse four, we read, with regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God, incline your ear to me and hear my words. Again, verse 6, with regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. What is David referring to here when he uses this language of a path or a way where his feet are not slipping but are adhering to that very distinct road that God has placed before him? He's, what is he referring to when he speaks of the words of your lips in reference to God himself? Psalm 119 comes to mind as that glorious poem that goes on with the words of affection and beauty about the very law of the Lord that which God had revealed of himself to that point that David held in hand when he considered God's word. This kind of attitude, no doubt, is here in this psalm when David said, with regard to the works of man, by the words of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. David distinguished between error and truth by the law of God. David chose his path according to the precepts that were laid out in the law of Moses and those other writings that he would have had ready at his hand at the time. David's steps held fast to these paths and did not slip. He did not come up with some arbitrary measure, but instead the things that David called wicked, evil, and adversarial to the will of God himself were carefully discerned by rightly applying God's word. And so it is in our prayers. We ought to do the same that we would effectively evaluate our circumstances according to the word of God that is powerful, it's effectual, it will accomplish everything God intends it to accomplish, and it's immutable. It never changes. When David refers in this section to the word of God, he uses the term, O God, and I forgot to mention this under the first point, but he has used the term also, O Lord. David opens this poem saying, Here, a just cause, O Lord. And the associations biblically and in the Hebrew, as I've read some commentary, could be along the lines of when you say, Lord, what you're saying is the blessed and possessor of absolute control, the master, the ruler, the holy judge of all the universe. Like saying your, alt, your honor. It's like saying your honor in the courtroom 
of God and all of history when you stand before His Excellency, the venerable judge whose authority and knowledge surpass all and are limitless. That's when David was aligning himself with righteousness. He uses that term Lord and now aligning himself with the immutable, the unchanging word of God. He uses the term God. O God, I call upon you for you will answer me. O God, verse 6, incline your ear to me and hear my words. And this term invokes the eternal, the self-existent, the limitless first cause, the wellspring of all power and glory. He who was and who is and who is to come, the great I am. His words are the ones that gave David the distinction and the battle lines, and where to draw them, who to recognize as an enemy and what they actually opposed. Don't fear the one who could just kill and take your life. The scriptures later say, but fear the one who has the power to send both body and soul to hell. And so David made that distinction by rightly applying the law, the word of God. When David talks about the words of your lips, speaking to the Lord's word, as represented, we mentioned in Psalm 119. It seems that it's obvious here that David is not talking, some, uh, talking about something of his own design. He's not focusing on an idea in his head that he has created and engineered. But as you read about even his tenuous footing, the fact that if he did not stay on the narrow way, he could easily fall, it's quite obvious and apparent in the poetic imagery, that this is not a road or a way of David's ambitious or self-confident design, but instead it is truly the narrow, the difficult, and the hard way that we've been studying in Matthew five, in Matthew uh, seven, and the fi- the way in which the the finders are few. David says in seventeen five, "My steps have held fast to your paths; my feet have not slipped." David reminds me, I should say, that the writings of John Bunyan, particularly in Pilgrim's Progress, remind me of the words of David. David describes the word of God being a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. David time and again refers to the way of the Lord and his righteousness and the paths that God has laid before us as a narrow gate, path and way, similar to the language of Pilgrim's Progress. And as you think about that great analogy and epic pilgrim's progress there's those moments where the path is just extremely difficult the way of difficulty that winds up the mountain and the two friends traveling companions abandon christian at that point for the easy way around the mountain to the right and to the left but the end of both was destruction nevertheless pilgrim or a christian in pilgrim's progress chooses that narrow path and journey In the valley of the shadow of death, a poetic analogy that Bunyan employs there is a built-up berm, very narrow on the top. You have to go slowly to feel your way. On the one side is a slough full of forces that would reach up enemies of God and His truth and pull you in if you were unaware or wouldn't uh, slice them with your sword when needed. On the other side, a chasm with the fires of hell raging beneath. These pictures well describe the narrow path that we are on as Christians spiritually. It's an image that lets us remember that this is not a way that we would choose or design. We don't just get our hammer and nails out and make our own way. 
and build our own bridges. Instead, this is a path that's very hard and difficult, but only, and only the faithful, the ones who love the law of the Lord, diligently seek Him, should have the confidence they, that they walk on it. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. Let me say something quickly about this war between those who find satisfaction in the next life and those who find satisfaction here. If you follow David's points, his strategy for spiritual war, one consequence is is that you will force the hand of the enemy. In your prayer life, in the decisions that you make, if you seek to align yourself with God's righteousness, you will force the hand of the enemy, even in the world around you, because in opposing you, they will be opposing God. Let's not give the world an excuse to oppose us for anything other than His glory. In other words, the lines will be clearly and sharply drawn. Point number two, if we align ourselves with the effectual and immutable word of, the, word of God, if that's the way that we are on, if that's the way that we insist on, then when we are out there opposed by the enemy, we will force His hand and show that in opposing us, they really don't oppose us. We, they oppose Christ. And in order for anyone to come to the knowledge of tr- truth, he must first come to the knowledge of his own sin. And if the life and the wars, the battles, choose your battles is a kind of aphorism that you might be familiar with today. That's pretty common. If the battles that us as believers choose are ones that I'm going to make the hill that I die on, the glory of Christ, his word rightly divided, his righteousness consistently upheld, if those are the hills that we choose to die on, then the enemy's hand will be forced. And he will, by testimony of his ostensible motives in this life, be held accountable to the word of God. In other words, how much greater is Christ's glory made known when those who are persecuted are persecuted unjustly so because they love their enemies. They do good to those that persecute them. They seek to benefit the kingdom of God. They're loving in the way that they move forward. They act in an attitude of grace. They follow through on their commitments. All they want to do is not compromise God's word and will. If that's still not to be suffered in this culture today, those battle lines will be sharply drawn and there will be no good excuse for opposing the Christian. And this is the point. We align ourselves and our strategy for spiritual war with the things that God has called us to uphold without compromise. Not only will it sow seeds of comfort that our heavenly reward is secure in our hearts, but it will also provide an important distinction between us and the forces that oppose us in such a way that it might graciously demonstrate to someone, the world around, in their animosity, their own sin. And if not, nevertheless, God is glorified. And verse, or point number three, and picking up in verse number seven, we'll read three verses first. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge, from their adversaries at your right hand. Verse 8, keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence. My deadly enemies surround me. In this section, David has clearly aligned himself with God's unwavering covenant faithfulness. 
Suddenly there's this language of close friendship, intimacy even, where David sees himself like a small bird, like a baby chick, huddling under the wings of the nesting mother as a picture of his relationship to his covenant head who would provide for him the protection and the place for him to run from shelter given the circumstances and adversity in the world around. In verse 8, keep me as the apple of your eye. The most precious and well-defended, it could be argued in some ways, aspect of the body is the eye. It's very vulnerable, valuable. Without our eyes, think of how our life would be limited. And so we have these reflexes and reactions where if something even comes across our vision close, you know, by reflex we immediately blink and close our eyes and protect them. So it is with everything that we love and feast our attention on, we use our eye primarily to do so, the window of the soul. We set our gaze, even as we set our affections on something, and the apple or the pupil of our eye has the full, it, it takes in and, and uh, with full attention that which it loves and, and lays eyes upon. And, and David's request is that he would be the object of God's full attention. He would be the one that God would take in and that God would set his gaze, his favor upon. And the imagery here is, is amazing. You can see how a prayer like this, if you had confidence it would be answered, would give you confidence against any enemy. Because not only are you standing for righteousness and the word of God, but you're not standing alone. You're standing with the favor of a loving father. You're standing in the gaze of his eyes that look upon his beloved in a way that the unconditional love just seems to swallow you up in his gaze. Verse 7, wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. And it is not coincidental that David now uses the word Savior to attach as a name to God in this aspect of aligning himself with God's covenant faithfulness. Let me be in your favor. I want to be your beloved. Let me find refuge in knowing that you never break your promises and that you will go out and defend me, that you will be my shield and my buckler and do this as my Savior. His Lord, His God, and now His Savior. Savior, the associations, of course, for us are so powerful as we consider the relationship between a holy God and His redeemed. This language invokes for us now with new covenant revelation the testimony of Jesus Christ Himself and His redemptive work. The, the name of God as our Savior is sustained only by the precious blood of Jesus Christ alone, the anticipated in David's day, and now the celebrated in our day, perfect, substitutionary Messiah and sacrifice, our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the heart of David's confidence and where he runs for strength in this battle, aligning himself with God's covenant favor. How will this force the hand of the enemy? Well, in, in aligning ourselves and seeking a life and demonstrating to the world around that our loves and our desires are increasingly shaped by the things that are united with Christ. 
and the things that are congruent with the testimony and the definition of his covenant with us. In other words, if what makes us most happy and excited, secure and comfortable, at peace and secure, and our mind and our hope moving forward is the testimony of what Jesus did to, pur- to purchase for us our next waking breath, as well as all eternity, that those who oppose us will then be setting their face against that, and they will be forcing their hand, and we will be forcing their hand in showing that their portion is not in Christ, but instead in this life. Let them oppose you, Christian, for the threat that you represent to their self-justification. Why might you ask, the great apologist Justin Martyr asked this question of the power structure of his day in ancient Rome. Justin Martyr was one of the first apologists of the early church, and he wrote his apologia to the emperor of the day, and he said, why would you endorse and Lord preside over a civil structure who would set its face against the most productive, loving, virtuous elements in your society. You see, the Christians were persecuted to great degree during that time. And after Justin Martyr had made his reasonable case for God, after he had shown to the best of his ability and his great knowledge that the Bible was authoritative, infallible, and indispensable for the cause, the course, and, and the soul of man, he then went on to say, and why, O emperor, would you and your regime oppose the most virtuous elements of your society, unless it was to force the hand that they opposed the Christians then as they do the true believers today, not because they represent a threat to their portion in this, in the next life, but instead because they represent a threat to their portion in this life. In other words, Christianity is seen as the ultimate killjoy. It's the thing, religion, Christianity, right and wrong, that will make us feel guilty and sorry and cast a cloud over my whole life direction. I will not suffer to have my portion in this life threatened by those who place their affections in the next. When we align ourselves with God's unwavering covenant faithfulness, we may have this kind, and we will, I trust to some degree, have this effect on the world. But nevertheless... Let us be about this business of uniting ourselves with the covenant terms of God's favor. Because if an apologist were to write today, as many of them do, seldom would have the same well from which to draw that Justin Martyr did then. Why? Because the confidence of Christians today is not as closely tied to the terms of God's covenant favor as it needs needs to be. And why do I know this? Because on many measures, there is no statistical difference in the virtue, the affections, the love, the decisions, and the pursuits that we entertain as his confessing people as we ought to. David would never suffer to have such men in his camp. When he was walking in the Spirit, he would call attention to their error and say, Listen, if we want confidence in this physical battle, it is vain if we don't have victory in the spiritual one. Let your life be so in love with the covenant terms of God that you love the things that he loves and find refuge knowing that you are his child. Entertain those thoughts. Don't look for joy, comfort, peace, and justification anywhere else. 
Today we are certainly in a spiritual war. Just as David was then. Some people say, you know, times have never been so bad and the battle's never been so strong. But, you know, really there's not that much. Really there's nothing new under the sun. Ever since sin has entered this world, these lines have been drawn. And the promise of Satan in the garden is the same promise he deceptively offers today. That you can have your portion in this life. When Satan went to Adam and Eve to make his case, he told them that they could be like God, having knowledge of good and evil, and that they could indulge this life, and it would actually purchase for them a portion that would make them in the enviable position, or that would gain for them the enviable position of God himself. And so it was in David's day, men acting outside of God's purview and authority, lawlessly, not following his precepts. And David knew, since he was seeking to follow God's footsteps, that those who opposed him were opposing more than just a man. They're opposing the will of God himself. And they were seeking their portion in this life. Saul must have David killed or else his kingdom was threatened. Saul's portion was in this life. And when that man finally fell on his own sword, in order to somehow uh, preserve some vestige of honor, having been defeated in war, he went down in the history books that we read today in all of foolishness and infamy. His portion in this life was futilely pursued to the end of his course in his days until now he lives on as a byword for this generation to learn by contrast rather than by reflection. Now David, on the other hand, on the other side, of the line of demarcation in this great spiritual war, it was entirely different. Though this man was equally sinful as Saul, he lived his life according to a different standard and measure. He pursued in his times of spiritual clarity with the most passion that he could muster a direction in his life that would shore up a portion in the next. And now we have their testimony to read before us. And we pray that we would be a man like David after God's own heart, and not a fool like Saul, who would give his own life for a portion he could never ultimately take with him to the next. I don't know if any of you have been listening to the presidential debates lately. We like to think that the lines of demarcation are clearly drawn in politics today. That is, I'm going to vote for the right candidate according to my conscience. But I wonder how many of you are thirsty for truth, and with a fresh view of Scripture in mind, particularly Psalm 17, holding that standard up to the supposed two options or opposite sides of the coin or disagreements or different ideas today, I wonder how many of you are thirsty for the true principle. That is, will we ever have, again in this nation, any vestige of truth in any other sphere that would align itself with the vindication of God's righteousness? Imagine that in politics. If the points you made in the debate were informed more by the word of God and his standards of truth than your latest polling data. When the Lord tells us that this world is caught in sin and that we as in our human nature are dead in our trespasses and sins and the way is narrow and the path that is is very straight and there, there are few that find it. When we seek to form policies and that would direct the course of affairs in a whole nation, Does it make sense to poll the majority to come up with the solutions? I'm not questioning the very basis of representative government. 
What I am saying is that good representative government assumes that the representatives are only valuable to inform, or that the populace is only valuable to inform the process to the degree that they come to grips with their own sin. And the righteousness that they advocate for is by the standard of God's word. Time and again, when I listen to debates and people differ on things these days, in the political sphere especially because, you know, we're going to be voting in less than a month for a presidential candidate and others, I'm asking for, hoping for, wishing that there would be an actual principal difference between one side and the other and just not varying degrees or mode of implementation. Nevertheless, although that lagging indicator may not measure up with God's standards of truth even in our lifetime, let it not be because we came to our positions by taking an opinion poll. Let it not be because the people went of God were praying according to some other standards of righteousness than, God, than God's own. Let it not be that we were so tired of being a small voice and marginalized that we conceded and compromised and joined the enemy to any degree. Our only hope for this nation is repentance. For us to have leaders like, with a heart like David, who was a political leader as well as a spiritual leader in his day, there's going to be a great move of God that must proceed it before we ever hope to have the next four years shored up in any way that would prevent a whole-scale sweeping judgment that would rightly dispense what we justly deserve for our rebellion and waywardness of heart as evidenced by nearly every policy and every opinion in this nation by way of majority today. In closing, this is one way we can apply this chapter is to pray according to the terms of Scripture and have our positions and our thoughts informed by its standards. David's poetic language is deep and rich. He talks in great detail in here, and and this song unfolds with such beautiful language evoking the relationship, devotion of soul and being of ourselves to God and God to us. He goes on with descriptive imagery of the posture and position of those who had opposed God's word as a prowling line that would seek to devour his purposes, whereas those who stand strong in his word, though their way might seem tenuous at times, nevertheless stick to the path and don't take any side roads or a road that is easy and would lead to death. And thirdly, as David is unfolding these truths before us, the benefit of the poetry provides us this recurring emphasis that is demonstrated by the enlisting of the senses. Over and again, he talks about the ears, the lips, the eyes, the heart, the steps, the feet. Again, the ears, the hands, again, the eye, and even wings. And, and these are either things that we can touch, things that we are senses themselves, the way that we perceive the world around, or they are the organs of the body that we inter- interact with the world around on a daily basis. And the idea is to use those as a measure to see if sanctification is needed. In other words, what have we been listening to? What have we been speaking? Where have our steps taken us lately? And where have the soles of our feet trod? Has it been what the lips of God have spoken? Has it been the way that He has prepared before us? Has it been the blessings that are dispensed by His right hand? Has it been the favor of his eyes? 
has it been the protection of his wings? Let's close in prayer. Lord, I want to pray that we would present our bodies as a living sacrifice to you in order that you might be pleased to use us in the service of your kingdom. Lord, you have ordained that all of your body play an active role and that when those graces are coordinated, it makes a beautiful picture of your bride. Lord, we surely have many spots and blemishes that need to be erased in process so that we reclaim the vision for your kingdom as your faithful servants, Lord, are called to bear when we march forward in a dark world. I pray, Lord, in this war that we would find our portion not in this life and we would not order our footsteps, our lips to speak anything, our ears to hear anything, Lord, our heart to love anything, our eyes to take in anything, that we would not order our members, Lord, to behold anything except the glory of our God, the purposes that you have ordained, and to be inspired by your scripture alone so that we have, Lord Jesus, a clear understanding of the war in front of us. Lord, if we've indulged any behavior, Lord Jesus, that has sought a portion in this life, I pray that we'd repent of falling short of your glory, and that we would leave those wayward affections aside, that we would pick up our cross and follow you, Lord, even as you died on the cross to purchase our ultimate salvation. We glorify you, Lord, and we pray that one day all of us warriors might appear before your throne to receive a crown in glory. And when we do so, we promise we will cast it before your throne, singing, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain, to receive blessing and glory and honor, because you alone can declare, and you alone can make us righteous because of your saving work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.